In the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, I'll begin reading in the first verse. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and, where, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And she, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw the two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I need your help. I'd like to invite you to take a guess. I'd like you to guess at the history report and presentation that my youngest daughter will be making in a few days. Can you guess? On who? Come on, I didn't hear you. Someone said Tut, you got it right, King Tut. King Tut strikes us in his story, even though his tomb compared to other pharaohs are relatively small, it was found to be full of opulence, right? Gold, games he could even supposedly play in the afterlife. All of this wealth and magnificent that has traveled around the world for all of us to see. It's captured our attention. But the striking difference between 
untouched tomb. And the tomb that we heard about from another history report today from God's word is significant. Because the tomb of Jesus was empty. The tomb of Christ Jesus our Lord. Not full of opulence. It was empty. And the only thing left behind were some shrouds hinting at death left behind. The linen cloths. It's a striking difference. And yet that empty tune has been written about and spoken of not just for decades, but for centuries. That witness continues to make all the difference. And as we examine this text today, I think together we'll find some important, fascinating truth. Not only that the tomb was empty, but we'll get even more evidence than that. That Christ really bodily raised from the dead. We'll also encounter the real emotion of those who first discovered and announced the resurrection. The kind of emotion that you'd expect to have and experience if you encounter something so unexpected as Christ's resurrection. And then finally, especially with the faith of Mary on display in John chapter 20, we will be, as she was, evoked to live new life. Evidence, emotion, and evoked to new life. Let's look for this together now as we come to John 20 today. For they gathered as early as they could after the Passover, as soon as they could, in the early morning, or in the Gospel of Luke, it could be translated in the deep dark, here still in the deep deep dawn, or here in John, where it's still dark, as early as they could come, they came to take care of their Lord Jesus, whom they loved. But what they found, and I say they because we know from the other gospel accounts that there were more than just Mary there. Other women had joined her, and we get a hint of that later on in this text in John. But we discover That when they arrive at the tomb, Mary, when she gets there, she doesn't find what she was expecting. And she found what she wasn't expecting. It was a complete surprise. The linen cloths, it wasn't disheveled. It says it was folded or rolled it up. Carefully cast aside, put aside, separated, not like a a tomb raider might, rushing out, taking these expensive cloths paid for for Jesus by Joseph of Arimathea. They would have brought them with them. No. The expected body was not found. Only the remnant of death left behind. Take in this scene for a moment in your mind. What emotions would you have had if you arrived and found no body? Fear? Bewilderment? Would you make the same kind of assumptions that Mary did? Would you have a hint of hope 
that John did? Or fear and bewilderment? Or would you marvel or wonder? These are all the kind of reactions that the first disciples had when they encountered this empty tomb. And so Mary runs away from the empty tomb back to tell the disciples to report that the tomb is empty. And so John and Peter, they rush there. Of course, John points out he got there first. They rush there. John doesn't quite go in, but Peter does. And we have three different reactions to this empty tomb. Mary finds a tragedy. She assumes that Jesus' body has been stolen. Meanwhile, Peter is just confused. He's perplexed. He's wondering, what is going on? And then you have John. And he comes into that tomb looking at those neatly wrapped grave clothes. And he says, and he believes. But what about you? As you encounter the empty tomb today, where are you today? Are you like Mary who first comes in and assumes the worst? Maybe your sense is that God has let you down. Maybe you are assuming tragedy. Or maybe you're like Peter as you consider this empty tomb and you're confused. Or maybe you're just wondering. You've got questions. And you're wondering what is going on. Or maybe in encountering the tomb, maybe like John, you believe. Though he still didn't fully understand the meaning of the scriptures. Where are you today? I invite you to let this text, to let this evidence speak to you. And it can't be separated. It can't be separated. That is what happened on Monday, Thursday, when Jesus instituted Holy Communion. On Good Friday, when he went to the cross to finish his work, to set us free from sin. And when on that third day, on Sunday, when he rose from the dead, those events can't be separated. In the Gospel of John, he's careful to make sure that this whole experience is really just one final event. You hear that from the Apostle Paul at the beginning of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, for he says, For I delivered to you as first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, it can't be separated. This whole story must be told. And the empty tomb is telling us some important parts of that story. It's a key piece of evidence. But not only the empty tomb. An encounter with Jesus. His body has died and rose again. The word itself in Greek, resurrection, implies that there was a dead body that's come to life. It's not an allegorical word. It's a physical, tangible word that means dead to life. A physical body. 
We get this throughout the whole book of the Gospel of John. Chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and it dwelt among us. It put on flesh. And now, in chapter 20, that flesh that died is now come to life. For, for John, this incarnate, this incarnate, this flesh must be the Word alive. And this testimony is corroborated by not only the other gospel writers, but early texts like 1 Corinthians that you heard today. That Jesus is alive. Now consider some of this evidence with me for a few moments, will you? If tomb raiders would have taken the time to come and steal Jesus' body with that expensive, likely... Uh, some think Egyptian grave cloths, others think others, but either way, expensive. They wouldn't have left the cloths so neatly wrapped. Even the rumor that the religious leaders floated, and we hear reported in the scriptures that, that the body had been stolen, and that's the reason why the empty tomb was empty, lets us know unequivocally that the tomb was empty. And we can get into so many details and facts about why that is significant. But let me just share a couple more. The reports of Jesus' resurrection came way too early, for example, to be legend. In the that same chapter that came just 15 or 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead in 1 Corinthians, it was written and proclaimed, and the good news of Christ was proclaimed way too early for it to become a legend. You see, the Apostle Paul points out there was at least 500 eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus and encountered the risen Christ. And he said, most of them are still alive. You can go ask them. Ask for yourself that he is alive. The reason why you couldn't have a legend written that early of an account is because for a legend to work, you need everybody to die. Everyone who would, tr could or refute your claims needed to die first. The account was written too early for that to happen. And so we have eyewitness affirmation. And then, as I was reading in the beginning of a, a of a chapter of about the resurrection this week. There are those who believe that the Bible is just too culturally irrelevant today to believe. And to those who would say that, I say you're reading it wrong. Because what we see is in the God's holy word, even in the Old Testament where some of the patriarchs or those who we'd call Bible heroes who lived lives that we would go, we wouldn't live like that today or uh, with uh, the mistreatment of those below them or, or polygamy. And actually the scripture points out the, the folly and brokenness of their lives. And it's part of the reason why we need a savior. And now fast forward to the New Testament in the first century where women were not highly esteemed. In that culture, they were 
esteemed in one way and then put down in another. For example, they were not allowed to give testimony in a court of law. It wasn't considered valid testimony. But not to Jesus. Who would Jesus use in every single account to be the first witness to the good news of the gospel? Women. Mary says in John 20, we don't know where they've laid him. We, we know that, that we included at least Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and Joanna, and maybe some others we get a hint of at the end of chapter 20. For Jesus, women would be the first evangelist, the first to see him, the first to proclaim. And by the way, if you're trying to make this story up and you want people to believe it in the first century, you wouldn't tell everyone that the first witness is a witness whom your culture disregards. And so the evidence continues to mount. One of my favorite authors of late, J. Warner Wallace, he's a, by vocation, a homicide detective, a cold case detective, and uh, you may have seen him uh, solve some of the, his cold cases that he's reported on on the TV show Dateline. He's also written extensively, well accustomed with evaluating evidence, witness statements and interviews and corroborating evidence. But as a younger man in his mid-30s, he was known as to his friends and colleagues as an atheist. That is until he applied his detective skills to uh, evaluate the Christian faith. And what he found is fascinating. A cold case detective comes at the text. He listens to the witness statements in the gospel. And what he finds there in the differences and the, and the varied voices is exactly what he'd find from authentic eyewitness accounts. They would bring their own perspective, not whitewashed and homogenized together. There would have been a sure sign of collusion. And in a recent lecture I watched of his called A Person of Interest, he talks about whenever there's a, an, a major event, there's a fallout a fallout effect of, of those around. And when that major event happens with someone who's well known, that fallout event even extends into those who would write about that person. And that is certainly true of Jesus. Wallace reports that those who hated Jesus would write about him. Those who loved Jesus would write about him. That even if we didn't have, and this is amazing that we have 500, over 500 early manuscripts of the New Testament. For a document 2,000 years old, that's an amazing number in ancient history. But even if we didn't have all 500 of those manuscripts, we would have 87.6% of Matthew quoted by those in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century who were quoting him. We would have 66.9% of Mark. 
we would have 86% of the Gospel of Luke and 98% of the Gospel of John. All in outside source material telling the story of Christ. But not only that, there are those that would confirm the truth of what happened on that resurrection weekend by those who despised Christians. There was Tatius. He was a, a, a Roman librarian and historian. He despised Christians. He was writing to sh- try and prove that somehow it was the Christian fault that Rome, Rome burned instead of Nero. And in referring to Christians, he referred to Jesus as Christus, Christ, the Messiah. Now, Tassius lived in 55 to 118 A.D., where people who were still alive at the time of the resurrection. In other words, the fact that Jesus was known as the Christ, the Messiah, even by his enemies, tells us this is not something that came later on. Now, he thought Christ was his name and not his title, but that's okay. He knew that Christ was associated with the beginning of the movement of Christians, and he confirms that in his writing. He even goes on to confirm that he knew that Jesus was executed by a Roman governor in Judea at the time of his death when Pontius Pilate was the governor there. And so we have all this corroborating evidence that these types of first-hand eyewitness accounts are being corroborated by even those who would be against the gospel. I particularly like Larry Hurtado, a first-century uh, ancient scholar the, uh, who wrote and shared in a lecture that he gave called, Why in the World Will Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? He said, because there was no good social reason, no encouragement, just the opposite. He said, the only good reason is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And so I ask you again, as you encounter this empty tomb, where are you today? We fill up our lives with so many things like Tut did that don't do what we think or hope they will do. Many of them are good things, beautiful things. But they won't accomplish for us in this life or in the life to come what we hope they will. Only the one whose tomb was empty, only the one whose body rose from the dead for the sake of redeeming the world will transform us. This empty tomb is no metaphor. It's a moment in history that you can trust. And if you understand that Jesus rose from the dead, then you've got to believe everything he said. It changes everything. It changes how we fill our lives and what we fill our lives with. When we encounter this empty tomb, it's not just an empty tomb. We encounter Jesus. Jesus came to Mary. And 
By the way, if you're making this up, you wouldn't have your eyewitness not recognize the person of interest. He came to Mary, and when she heard her name, she knew it was the Lord. Jesus is calling your name today. He's calling you. It's not about what Mary didn't know. It's about who Jesus is. As one person put it, Easter is God's certain victory in the face of human uncertainty. Sight was necessary in this account, but it was not sufficient. Mary needed to hear her name called. She needed to encounter Jesus. And so do you. And so do I. Jesus is calling our name today to move from tragedy or confusion to belief and faith. And when we are brought there by Jesus in this real life event as he calls our name, it evokes us to go and tell a story. Not only is it beautiful as we saw all those who helped tell the story this week, in gathering in this place, it's even more beautiful when we go and share it with the world around us. Mary, Peter, and John, they didn't hold the key. Jesus does. When uh, Ben Malcolm, who was a senior, uh, a journalism student at USC, wanted to tell a story about the then championship team because we thought it was interesting that so many folks were trying out as walk-ons on this championship team. How could they even imagine they'd have a chance? And so to, to get a, a better scoop and to uh, have a better story, he got the, the coach, Pete Carroll, to agree to let him to try out as a walk-on. No one knew... Uh, exactly he was doing a story although he did some side interviews and then after the tryouts and he was finishing up his story he was really excited about it he was there and he got a call while he was finishing from a friend of his who said I just was at the the listing of the team Ben you made the team now we had to go to practice Mary made the team, and she ran and told the disciples that he's alive, that she'd seen the Lord. When Jesus calls your name, you have made the team. Go and tell those who live in your home that he's alive. Go and tell your best friend that he's alive. Go and tell that person at work that really bugs you that he's alive. Mary ran. She moved from tragedy and confusion to faith. And because of what Christ has done, so can we. In the newly uh, minted, go in peace and serve the Lord uh, above the door as you exit. Today, my, one of my daughters said, you know, I think we should uh, start hitting it as we go out like athletes do when they leave the locker room. Because you've made the team, remember. We go and tell the good news of the gospel. The grave 
clothes, the grave linens, they weren't disheveled. They were folded neatly. This was God's plan all along. This was no accident. Death, resurrection, and the shroud of death now left behind. Put aside. Hear this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.